Welcome to The Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Best-selling Australian author Tia Cooper lives in a time warp. A postcard perfect village two hours from Sydney with 19th century sandstone buildings that take you straight back to the 1830s. Hi there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler and today Tia talks about how her surroundings inspire her popular historic fiction and what she'd change if she was doing it all again. But before we talk to Tia, just a reminder that the show notes for this binge reading episode can be found on the website thejoysofbingereading.com. That's where you'll find links to Tia's books and website, as well as details about how to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss future episodes. But now, here's Tia. Hello there, Tia, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Thank you very much for the invitation. It's lovely to be talking with you. So this is one of those occasions when we're talking across the Tasman from New South Wales to Auckland. So it's it's lovely to have somebody closer to home uh, with me today. So beginning at the beginning, was there a once upon a time moment when you decided you wanted to write fiction? And if there was some sort of catalyst for it, what was it? I can't really remember a time when I didn't want to write stories. I was one of those little girls who parked themselves in her bedroom, you know, made little books and sewed the sides together and things like that. Um, but I guess I guess a light bulb moment was probably when, when I was at boarding school, a group of us decided we were going to write a story about the school gardener. Um, it got us into a heap of trouble. Um, but it did, um, and we yes, we had to go our separate ways. The power of words, if you like, and how believable a fictional story can be. So I suppose if there was a catalyst moment, that was that. It was like, and, and two of us actually did go on to work as journalists, so it obviously had an impact on us. <laughs> Just allowing myself to be diverted for a moment. I mean, these days, if girls started to write stories like that, they'd probably be congratulated on their initiative, wouldn't they? It was a long time ago, a very long time ago. <laughs> Things have changed a lot since then. Was the gardener particularly spunky? No. <laughs> I, I mean, I can actually remember his name, but I obviously won't repeat it. No, 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 definitely, you know, bald and 40, but he was, well, probably 40, which seemed like really old. Um, but um, he was, yeah, it was an all-girls school. He was the only male on the premises, poor guy. It's funny, I had a similar sort of education and, you know, even the guys that came in to lay the carpet, they, they even that, they were, men were so rare that you ogled them all, didn't you? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so I'm glad you understand it. Some people look at me a bit sideways and say, well, you know, did you have a problem? Do you have men? But no, it was, yeah, it was. So I, yeah, that, that, I think that was probably the catalyst, actually. Yes, that's lovely. If it yeah. wasn't, it's a nice story. But you didn't get expelled, I hope. Um. Yes. You did? How ridiculous. That's Well, no, let's not go there. It was a, lot, okay, it was a long time ago. Okay, well, it's some, a lovely some, story. Some people, some people were expelled, others sort of stayed, but it wasn't very nice, so we left afterwards. Oh, that's sad. But anyway, yeah. So, oh, but, but we're still very good friends. I would like to point out that we are all still very good friends. So that's, um, 
that's quite interesting. <laughs> Absolutely. But a bonding experience, no long-term damage, hopefully. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so it's understandable then that you were drawn into romance when you started to write. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, but that I actually, I actually, it was a long, long time ago um, when I first decided I was going to write a contemporary romance. Um, I found a competition, Mills and Boone competition in the Women's Weekly. And um, so I wrote a, a story and sent it off. It was it was a really, you know, really rainy Easter school holidays because I was teaching then. Anyway, I sent it off. And I won second prize. I won a bottle of Chloe perfume. But I didn't get the contract I hoped for. And <laughs> it took another 30 years for me to have, try again. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I don't really know why I started with, with contemporary because, I mean, history has always been my first love. Um, where the mystery bits come from, I'm not quite sure. That's sort of evolved. But, uh, yeah, so I started, I, maybe, perhaps I thought it would be easier to write a, a contemporary romance. But, yeah, I don't know. So your debut novel was Tree Change, which was a contemporary Australian romance, wasn't it? Yes, it was. It was because I, um, I actually found, when I decided that I was going to try again, um, I happened to find a Mills and Boone contest online. And, um, again, I've no idea why I wrote a contemporary and not. So I wrote the first three chapters and shoved it up there and got lots of nice feedback about it and then went on to finish it off. Um, but, yeah, they're definitely in my apprenticeship. I mean, they're awful. I keep threatening to take them down and rewrite them, but I haven't got around to it yet. And so was Tree Change actually the first manuscript that you finished or were there a few in between that you started and, and didn't go anywhere? No, no, no. It was the first one. Well, the first one was obviously the one I entered 30 years before in this competition mm, mm -hmm. um, it was a short I've still got it well I didn't have it somebody a friend of mine I gave it to a friend of mine to read and she actually turned up with it not very long ago it was called Arctic Ambience <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, yeah it was a long time ago uh, <laughs> anyway yeah yes yeah, so yes Tree Change was, was the next basically the next story that I wrote yeah and then you moved into slightly more rural sort of settings didn't you with the other side of Tomcat Creek and back to Blue Gum Flat, they were described as rural romances. Yes, and, and The Journey Home. The Journey Home was actually originally called, um, was published by a small e-publisher. It was actually originally called The Protea Boys um, because it was based on a protea farm and I had a protea farm. Um, so that was, I just suddenly, it was, it's easier to write, you know, write what you know, the old um adage um so yes so i wrote the protea boys and then the other two sort of spun out of that and were, they're very loosely based on where i live i mean it's so much easier to set a book in an area that you know really well yes yes i can understand that but then you did get drawn into this the historical mysteries area and you've been very very solidly set in the historical mystery niche for quite some time now. You've now got 12 books to your credit. Um, how did that evolution happen from the romance into the historical mysteries or the historicals anyway? Well, I, the, the first um, three contemporaries that I wrote were published by a small um, e-publisher in Canada. Um, and then I wrote, I actually wrote Lily's Leap first, but it wasn't published by Escape. I, I, it was published by Escape. But prior to that, I'd written another historical, or no, prior to, no, after that, I wrote another historical called um, Matilda's Freedom, which Escape picked up and then they picked up Lily's Leap. 
So those were the first two sort of historicals. But I don't really, I don't really count those as books. I mean, I suppose I do the the e-books, but they're, they're fifty thousand words. A lot. Of, the other ones are sort of forty and fifty, and they're not. I usually sort of say that I've written four books because they're print books and they're significantly longer. Um, but yeah, the, and the biggest milestone, obviously, was writing the horse thief. Yes. Um, there's a nice story to that. I'll tell you a nice story to that. I, I'd written it as a, um, a 50,000-word book to um, send to Escape, and I sent it to one of my critique partners, and she sent it back and said, to, you know, don't be ridiculous. He would have been hung as a horse. Thief. Oh, it was called a stud master originally. I don't, I'm really bad on titles. And, of course, that sound ter- sounded terribly raunchy, which it wasn't. Um, and uh, anyway, she said, don't be ridiculous. He would have been hung as a horse thief. Um so I went and checked it out, and in actual fact, he wouldn't have done the law being changed by then, but I, I fi- then finished the story so that he was, he was arrested, and it ended up at about 90,000 words. And, um, you know, in that sort of serendipitous way that things happen in publishing, I decided to go to the RWA conference in Sydney, and I pitched it to Sue Brockhoff because she, simply because she was the only person with historicals on her wish list. Um, and she wanted Australian stories, and they had to be around ninety to 100,000 words. So it was like, oh, give it a go. And she accepted it, and it took off like a rocket, and suddenly I was writing for Harlequin Mirror. Oh, that's fantastic, yeah. It really was, you know, right place, right time, just... But that's the way things happen, I think, a lot in publishing. Yes, but you had put in the work beforehand, you know what I mean? It, it wasn't just all falling into your lap. You'd done a lot of preparation to be ready for it. Yes, I, I suppose so, and I, I think I'd, you know, I'm not sure that I like this expression, but I think I'd found my voice. You know, I, I, I was much more comfortable writing by then. I, I, I had a few more stories under my belt. And so what, what year was The Horse Thief? <laughs> 2015, or was it, two, I think it was 2015. It came out in November because it references the Melbourne Cup. So they very kindly brought it out right at the beginning of November, which was at the very end of October. So, you know, that, that was a, a nice bonus Yes, in terms of publicity. So that obviously was a milestone. What other milestones have there been in terms of the historic fiction? Well, really, that that, that was it. Um, I started, well, and, and then I, I, was, I was writing print books, which is what I wanted to do. They were much longer stories. Um, and they take quite a lot of time because there's a fair amount of research in them. And, um, but it took, it, it was... So I pitched it in the August, and it didn't come out until 15, 16 months later. Um, and in that time, I wrote another one. And then I started another one. And they, the, the horse thief came out, and, and I sent the next one to Sue just to see what would happen, basically. And she, she said, yep, we'll fast track it. And it came out nine months later. And the same with the currency last Fantastic. So have you got a personal favourite amongst them or, do, or is the one you're working on right now the one you like the best? No, I have favourite characters. I, I don't think I have a favourite book and it's certainly not the one I'm writing. I usually detest the one I'm writing and go through <laughs> all sorts of – the plot's always like a rat's nest. and I, Yeah, you know, and I'm always convinced it'll never see the light of day. Now, I like characters. I, I really like Slinger in The Cedar Cutter. Um, he's he's only a minor character, but yeah, I, I think he's great, and you know, he, ultimately he saves the day. Um, 
and I'm, I, I became very fond of Rose and Phineas in the, in the uh, Naturalist Daughter. I like I yes. the relationship between them. Um, so I don't really have a favourite book. I think I have favorite yeah. characters. And, and, and one character, which I won't go into in the book, because I've just, the edits have just been finished, and I'm very taken with. <laughs> but, yeah, no, I think it's more characters. And is that, that's the woman in the green dress, the one that's coming, is it, that, that you mentioned? Yes. Just, yeah. We'll talk about that towards the end when we get on to talking about your projects. But you mentioned Rose and um, the naturalist daughter, and that's of, that's attracted a huge amount of attention. That book hasn't it? Yes, it's done. Um, it's done very well. There's been there's been a bit of a standing joke about whether horses or platypus are more um, saleable because the horse thief did very well, and then and the and the platypus one done very well. So you know. Depends which side of the fence you fall with the horses or with the platypus. Yes, the platypus is perhaps not something you'd immediately think of, but it's it's very charming. And that story, Charles Winton. I mean, when I started reading it, I because I didn't know enough about Australian history, I wasn't sure if he was based on a real person or not. So I had to kind of Google around and see that, discover that you had that he's entirely fictional. But that there was a yes, gap in the scientific history that allowed you to create this character. Can you tell us a little bit about that gap that you kind of wiggled your way through? I love gaps. <laughs> I search for gaps. I dream about them. I adore gaps. Um, it took me an enormously long time to write that book. Um, I started it after The Horse Thief and then wrote The, um, the Cedar Cutter and The Currency Lass in between um, and then came back to it. And then at one stage it was going to be three books. and So I basically wrote the entire backstory as well um but I, I read just about everything I could find on, on platypus and, and they fascinate me I mean I've got um but there was only one there was one fact that um that was very consistent and that was that Hunter was attributed as seeing the first platypus witnessing some curries spearing the platypus and he had it pickled and he had it and he sent it to England to the Literary and Philosophical Society of Newcastle upon Tyne and then I was poking around, I did a lot of poking around, um, and I found um, an old journal on Gutenberg which said that somebody else, no name, that, or that, no, it simply said that a, plat that a platypus pelt had been sent to Sir Joseph Banks. But I could find no reference to that at all. Now, maybe the ship went down, maybe it didn't get there. I don't know. But then I thought, ha-ha, I'm in business. Uh, and I started doing the, playing the old what-if and and that that was really the gap. It's not really a scientific gap. It was, it's more a, a gap in recording or reporting or possibly a gap in my research. But um, yeah, that's that's what, how it started. So all sorts of emails from people. So a couple of them quite irate because they couldn't find any reference to Charles Winton. <laughs> so I've sort of got, have you read the historical note? No. And then you get one back saying, Oh my God. <laughs> It's, it's a great compliment. <laughs> I was going to say it's a great compliment because that was exactly my reaction when I started it was, this sounds so convincing. I think he must be a real person, that kind of, yeah. I guess it's a gap in the scientific history in the sense that, you know, there's that always going to be that question as to what happened to the, if if there, somebody did send Joshua, uh, Rent, uh, was, what was his name again? Um, Joseph Banks. Joseph Banks, sorry, Joseph Banks, yes. Um about who who was it exactly, yeah. Well, who was it, what happened to it? And I'm, I'm sure that, that Joseph Banks would have done something about it. So, 
anyway, I mean, did he, did somebody do it? I don't know, but it was, it was great. It, it really made the, the entire, as I said, I, I, it, the story went through several incarnations and that absolutely came quite late in the piece and absolutely made the story gel. Yeah. And it must have been nice that I didn't even realise that there are, there have been some platypus in your hunter area. I didn't. Well, yes, mm. yes. Well, there still are. Mm. Um, but, I mean, not very many. And pe- people sort of don't talk about it, you know, because they don't want them disturbed. Yes. yes. That, that, that enabled me to bring the story to Wollombi, which is what I wanted to do, or to the hunter, actually. I mean, I like to, I like to keep the stories local. Yes. I like writing writing about the local. I mean, if you get stuck and you don't know what the clouds are going to look like or what weather's like, you go for a walk up the road. It makes it so much easier. <laughs> Everybody says to me, oh, we just use Google Earth. No, no, it's not the same. <laughs> all of your characters, all your female characters, um, seem to have a similar uh, tray in that they're, they're interesting, independent, strong-minded keen to set their own course in life. Would that, would that be a fair observation? I hope so, yes. And that's quite deliberate. It is. Well, yeah, well, it's, it's the way they come out. But I certainly, there, I mean, I find it slightly annoying because women, particularly in Australia, were much more significant um, in business sense um, and, and in, in, the, well, in the businesses they ran whether they were rural businesses or city businesses. Um, and we tend not to acknowledge that, I think. You know, they weren't sure they hadn't got any legal rights um, until the marriage, Married Women's Act, but they, they, were, they were a force to be reckoned with. I mean, useless piece of information. Um, in the 1850s, more of the businesses in George Street in Sydney, which was the main drag, were owned by women than they were men. Well, that's a fascinating uh, little fact. Um, I guess it doesn't surprise me. I think in those colonial societies, there are, of, sometimes was a bit more room for women to do their thing. There wasn't quite so much of a conservative sort of, you know, uh, padlock on them but but um yes i agree with you i think the same's true in new zealand and, and also i mean you can, if you look at um macarthur's wife i mean he was busy swanning around backwards and forwards to england trying to keep himself in or out of jail and she ran the entire business but as far as everybody's concerned you know the australia's fame and fortune was built on the back of a sheep which which <laughs> macarthur introduced but he didn't do any of the work elizabeth did <laughs> You're starting me on something I probably wasn't intending to get on path. <laughs> Perhaps moving away from specific books to a more of a focus on your wider career, if there's one thing you've done in your writing more than any other, what is it that's been the secret to your success? Oh, obviously, having, having the courage to pitch the horse thief, which was horribly terrifying. It was the best thing I could have done. I'm thrilled that. And, and at that time, Australian historicals weren't the flavour of the month. Um, so it was a bit of a gamble. Well, it was a bit of a gamble on, on Mira's part too, publishing it. But um, it, it was that, yeah, that's without a doubt the best thing I've done. Actually, there's been a real flourishing in that part of publishing, hasn't there? Both um, the historicals and the rural romances. There's a whole raft of new female women writers who are writing 
work that perhaps even a decade ago would have been sniffed at. Mm, there is, yeah. But I guess it's, you know, it's, um, well, back, back to what I was saying earlier, it's being in the right place at the right time and, and just having the stars align. Yes, yeah. You've indicated that your entry into writing was delayed by some of the more traditional commitments of a woman's life, you know, family life, parenting, and in your case, a herd of alpacas in a protea farm, which I think is wonderfully colourful. Do you think it's harder for women to establish themselves in writing? Um, well, first of all, in actual fact, what delayed my writing career wasn't um, so much the parenting as the sort of financial aspect of it. Of things, um, my husband and I were both teachers, and back in the eighties, you had interest rates around seventeen percent, mm, and mm, you know, mm, but one teaching salary didn't cut it, so there was no way I could go and try writing. Plus, there was no self-publishing in those days either. Um, so that um, I, I don't think that that it's harder for. Well, I don't. I didn't even think about it to be perfect. Maybe in some genres, it's harder for women to to establish themselves, um, and perhaps that's why I chose romance. But I, I don't remember it being a conscious decision. Mm-hmm. It, it was, you know, it was much more a financial decision, you know, could I make a buck out of this and pay the mortgage, basically, um, than, than anything else. Yes. And how have, you, have those past experiences, that whole wonderful range of life experience, how's that fed into your work, do you think? Um, well, I mean, obviously, Tim, Obviously, the alpacas and the protea farm helped, you know, writing rural romances. Um, I've, I've taught from adult to kindergarten um, and pretty much all over the place. Um, it depends whether you want the long story or the short story. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, um, you know, and, and I guess I wasn't afraid of writing, um, having – I mean, the journalist bit goes back a long time. Um, I'd, I'd finished at school, and I was supposed to be sitting my sitting my university entrance exams. And I wanted to, I wanted to be a journalist. I didn't want to be anything else. So I was told, "Well, you get yourself a job as a journalist, and you don't have to sit the entrance exams." So I did. I walked into the local newspaper and got myself a job as a cub reporter. Um, so it's, um, you know, it's. It, I think I think think that helped me helped me a lot because it didn't um, I didn't fear writing. And tell me what, what newspaper was that? Oh, I can't remember. I think it was called the Weekly Post or something like that. You know, it was it was one of the local syndicated things in England. I mean, I was in England at that. Oh, okay. So you were in England at that time, yeah. Yes, okay. yeah. And then um, and then twelve months later, there was a massive realignment of all of the newspapers, and I was out of a job. Um, so I ended up going to teachers' college. And I did my degree in English and history. And at the same time, I moonlighted as an editorial assistant. Um, and to cut a very long story short, I ended up teaching in India. Um, but that really is another story. And, and then after I'd done that, the, the contract was finished there. I kept on going, came to Australia and never went home. Um, but it's, I, th- I think all of the, well, I think any job that you do um, that involves people helps with writing of course it does because you you know insight into various different characters and and things like that sure um you you sound as if you're very much now 
an Australian, a committed Australian. Absolutely. I mean, I've lived, now lived in Australia longer than I've lived in England, except I can't get rid of my accent, as you may have noticed, which is quite amazing. <laughs> but it won't be. <laughs> the first podcast I did, um, I was absolutely horrified. And I rang up my daughter and I said, my God, I sound like the Queen. And she said, well, give me the link and I'll listen to it. And she said, Mum, that's what you sound like. <laughs> really? Anyway, I'm getting up worrying about it. Now I can't do it. I've been trying for donkey's years. <laughs> Um, yeah. So now for listeners who aren't familiar with Australia, I mean, Kiwis know all about the Hunter Valley, etc. But and I wasn't actually sure how you pronounced your, your town's name. Wollombi, Wall- is it? Wollombi. Wollombi, Wollombi. But not to be confused with Wollomai. Oh, okay. How, that is confusing. Where, yes, which is um, where the, um, I can't remember what they're called, those trees that are supposed to be pretty. Oh, yes, the pine, the the. The Wollomai Pine. Yes, yes. It's a yes. Wollomai Pine, but the village is Wollombai, which actually means meeting place in Aboriginal, in the local Aboriginal language. So for, for, for listeners who are not familiar with Australia, could you describe what you particularly love about the area that, that's made it such a focus for your work? Oh, well, well, I'm, it, it's sort of like a bit of a time warp um, Thing. I mean, Wollombi is really unique. Um, prior to European settlement, the um, it was it was a very very significant ceremonial meeting place for the Aboriginal people. Um, and there's the most amazing rock art and significant sites that date back thousands and thousands of years. Um, it, wa- it wasn't until the 1830s that um, the Europeans first worked their way this way, um, and they'd started building what's called the Great North Road, which runs from Sydney out to the Hunter Valley, well, out to Wollombi and beyond. And it was convict-built road. You know, they put them all in chains and told them to smash up bits of rock and this, that and the other. Um, and the road's still used today. It's, I mean, it's the most amazing piece of engineering. But the village was intended as the administrative centre and, the, um, and it, it was going to open up the whole of the lower hunter area but then they moved and by that stage there were a lot of convicts in newcastle they moved the convicts further north from newcastle and opened up the entire hunter area to settlement um but they introduced steam by then steamships had been introduced and it was quicker to go from sydney to newcastle by sea on a steamship and then up the hunter river than it was to use the great north road so Wollombi kind of got bypassed, and it's mm. and it's just been left. And I mean, the buildings are, you know, many of the buildings date back to the 1830s. I was doing muse- I, there's a museum there. I was down there yesterday doing my monthly museum duty, and it's the old courthouse, and it's still exactly the same. Nothing has been done to it. It's it's a beautiful sandstone building, but it it, it dates back, and it's exactly as it was. Um, lots of the private houses around here are like that. So. It's really easy to write a historical here because, you know, you're surrounded by it. Yes, that sounds gorgeous. Have you been there? Have you been there long? I lived a little further up the road. Um, I moved in '97, I think it was. I moved to a place called Buckety, which is sort of a little bit closer to Sydney than this. Um, and then when I spat the dummy and retired. Um, I had to get rid of my mortgage, so I moved a bit further out to Wollongong. Um, it's also it also has a more of a village 
field and the place I was living in, so you walk down the road and get a cup of coffee. So I've got 100 acres here, which is stuck up on the side of the cliff um, or the rocks. Um, but I can walk down to the village and get a newspaper or, you know, have a coffee down there, which I couldn't do at the other place. Yes. And, and there's, yeah. a, there's a pub down there, which is a great um, meeting place for everybody. Sounds like a lovely community. It is. It's great. It's, it's, it's fantastic. Um, and a lot of my books wouldn't have come to fruition without the Friday night bottle of red wine down at the pub. You know, I sort of rock in and say, okay, guys, I'm stuck. What would happen if or where did this, you know, anybody know anything? Anybody know where you'll find a platypus? <laughs> Come over here for a minute and I'll tell you that kind of thing. <laughs> oh, gorgeous. That's gorgeous, yeah. Look, turning to Tara's reader, because we're getting to the end of our time together, this series is called The Joys of Binge Reading, and I see it as providing inspiration for people who might want to look for new things to read. Um What's your taste in fiction, and have you been a binge reader in the past? I, I, I read anything. I read anything and everything. You know, I'm one of those annoying people. If I'm a passenger in the car, I read every sign as you drive along the road. Um, <laughs> I obviously read historical fiction and romance, although I'm not, I'm not a huge Regency fan. Have you read The Naturalist Daughter? Yes, I have, yes. So I was a bit I, – I quite enjoyed writing Rose Arriving in London because that was a bit – tongue-in-cheek because I'm not a, I'm not a Regency fan. Um, I'm, I'm also not a huge series fan, to be honest. I didn't get past the second Outlander book, but I love the TV show. Mm-hmm. And the same, same with, um, with Poldark. I'm, I'm more of a, an author fan, I think. So you actually like more literary fiction than genre fiction, perhaps? Not always. <laughs> I'm putting words in your mouth. Sorry, I, I, I do. I do actually have. I've got two books sitting here on my to be read pile. Well, I've got hundreds of books. I mean, there's half a dozen research books, but I've got the Shanghai Wife sitting here, and I've also got a book that's called um, How to Swear or, or Aussie Swear Words or something like that. You know, I, mean, <laughs> I really do read anything. <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I, I adore Kate Morton's books. Um, yes. I was lucky enough to get my hands on an, an ARC of her latest one, The Clockmaker's Daughter, which is fantastic. Uh, I still prefer The Forgotten Garden. But, um, so I've read every single one of her, her books. I've, lately I've in, enjoyed Natasha Lester's um, books. I've just finished The Paris Seamstress. I like books set in World War I and World War II. Um, yes. And The Alice Network was fantastic. So... And I oh, and I've just that was another that's another I'm just looking at the pile that's sitting over there. Um, I've also just finished the Lace Weaver by Lauren Chater, um, which is a debut book I think, and I'm definitely going to be look, you know looking for some more of hers. So I, I I think rather than series I read authors I think. Yes. And if I like them you know if I like the book I'll go and find the next one or the past one or or whatever. I inhale anything by Margaret Atwood. I suppose it's and Hannah Kent I liked her books too. Mm. And I'm reading The Book Thief at the moment. Yeah, well, maybe it is going a bit literary fiction, isn't it? I don't know. What's the difference between literary fiction and commercial fiction? That's a huge argument, isn't it? Yes, it is really. Perhaps just the commercial sometimes. Well, I mean, there, there are obviously are crossovers, and I think more and more in this environment there are crossovers because with indie publishing, people have got more flexibility. They're not quite kept within the rules that the trad publishers might want to have imposed. So there's probably even more of a melding of lines than there was before. But most of those you've quoted 
I'm I'm not familiar with all of them, but most of them are historical fiction, aren't they? Yeah, they're pretty much. There's a fairly heavy historical bent, I guess. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, I've read Leanne, I've read all of Leanne Moriarty's well back. So. Oh yes. Yeah. But, you know, um, but it's maybe it's just the flavour of the month. But yeah, most, if anything, towards historical. Yes. Look, circling around from to the beginning and then back to the end. At this stage in your career, if you were doing it all again. What would you change, if anything? I would have started a lot earlier, <laughs> a lot earlier. I would have been brave enough. Much, yeah, I could. It would have been great fun to have done it done it much sooner. Um, and so, realistically, would that have meant you know that you would have had to have committed yourself to five a.m. starts or one o'clock in the morning finishes? That you'd had to have done it at one at the beginning or end of the day around your other job? Is that what you would have had to have done? Yeah, I, I did a, um, a, a course in, um, what was it called? It was um, a literacy thing. It was, it was towards my master's um, while I was still teaching full time. And the only way I could do that was to get up at four o'clock in the morning and, and do it then. I'm not, I'm not a very good, very good at night. I'm very much, I'm better at, you know, earlier in the morning if I've got to, or it takes me twice as long at night. Um, but, yeah, I suppose I could have done, but I'm not sure that people did in those days. I don't know, but then people didn't have alpaca farms and protea farms while they were still teaching either, did they? I don't know. I, just, I, just, I, w- I, w- I wish I'd done it earlier. So tell me, what is next for Tia the writer? We've mentioned the one that you're just finishing and perhaps is in the edit stage at the moment, The Woman in the Green Dress. Can you tell us anything about that one? Um, yes, it'll be out on um, December the 17th. It's um, it's another historical. They do seem to be becoming mysteries. I'm not quite sure how it happened, but this one is even more of a mystery. Um, and it's another dual timeline. I'm, I'm really enjoying playing with the dual timeline thing. Um, it, it's the story of um, uh, London at Fleur Richards, who's um, it's the end of the First World War. And she's, oh, why don't I just read the thing from the blurb? It says, a mystery from another era in a distant country draws London of Fleur Richards deep into its web in pursuit of an inheritance, the first Australian opal and a poisonous legacy. And that's all you're getting. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds wonderful. I love the sound of opals and legacies. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I've uh, I've just finished the typeset edits. And so an ARC should be winging its way to the reviewers before long. And it'll hit the shops just before Christmas, just the same time as The Naturalist Daughter did, December the 17th. And then, oh, gone. Yes, sorry. I was going to say, and you're still with Mira, are you? Is it- um, well, it's now, um, The Naturalist Daughter came out under the HQ Fiction banner, which is because they were, um, um, Harlequin were taken over by HarperCollins. Oh yes, yeah. Right. So, and then that, so there's Mira, and then there's HQ Fiction. Okay. Um, yes. These are being. I, I think it's the difference is that there's a little less romance, perhaps, in the HQ Fiction. Once that's saw, well, hopefully, fairly soon after the conferences and things, I'll go back to my December 2019 release, which is um, called The Girl in the Painting. Um, I've written a very, very rough first draft but I had to put it aside while I was doing the edits because otherwise I get names muddled up <laughs> yes, yes. Um, yeah so that's that's what's on the card so I've got this the rest of this year and next year sorted out so that's that's in first draft stage so that's another Australian historical 
Yes, it is. Yes, it, it, it again, they tend to drift a little bit to England occasionally here and there. Um, there's not a lot of them, I'm just trying to think back. There's a little bit about England in the girl in the painting. Um, in Somerset, which is where my family originally came from. But, yeah. So that's what I will be doing. Wonderful. Now, where can readers find you online? And are you active on social media? Right. That's a bit tricky. My website's currently having an overhaul. But it should be up again very soon. And that's tiacooperauthor.com, which isn't terribly difficult. Um, so if anybody wanted to check out my books, I think the best place would probably be the if you bung in a search for Tia Cooper, HarperCollins, Australia. It brings up an author page there. Um, or on Amazon. Um, and I'm on Facebook as Tia Cooper. And I'm on Twitter and Instagram, but I'm appallingly bad at both of those, so I wouldn't take any notice of me there. And I've got a newsletter, and there's a link on my Facebook page under the About button. Oh, great, yes. So they can be in direct contact with you there. And do you also do anything on Goodreads? Um, yeah, I've got a Goodreads page. I tend to stay away from it a little bit. Well, I go through phases of it, actually. It's, it's, um, I think it's very much a reader's space rather than yeah, – so I tend, to, I tend to interact with readers in that situation, but I don't, you know, it's not an author space. Yeah, no, it isn't really. So you'd prefer to interact with your readers directly through your newsletter or on Facebook? Yeah, Facebook yeah. is great. Like, I, like, I like Facebook. It's nice and easy and you know, get a nice little ping on my phone when I get a message. So I tend not to, if sometimes if I tend not to go to Goodreads for ages and then go, oh, my God, I should have answered that ages ago. <laughs> okay, we'll say find tear on Facebook. That's, that's the that's – the On Facebook and, and, and check out my website if uh, – you know, in a little while. It shouldn't be too long. Tia, look, it's been wonderful talking to you. Thank you so much. And I know that we're going to have the chance to meet at the coming Romance Writers New Zealand Conference, which I'm really looking forward to. Thank you so much for the invitation. I'm really looking forward to catching up with you. Thanks so much. Bye for now. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audioservices at gmail.com. Or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right, and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone. As a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. 
He is super easy to work with, no matter what the job. You'll find him at Abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.